Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording June 24th, 2021, we're talking about anti-submarine warfare with Royal Canadian Navy Commander Peter Spruill. This podcast is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding, a strategic partner of the federal government's national shipbuilding strategy, providing skilled, well-paying jobs that support Canada's economic recovery. Focused on diversity and inclusion in employment and supply chain, Ships for Canada is growing opportunities for Indigenous people, women, African Canadians and veterans. Because when we build in Canada, we invest in Canadians. Peter, welcome to Defence Deconstructed. Glad to be here. So we're going to talk today about a paper that you wrote that was published in the Canadian Naval Review uh, because it won the Canadian uh, Memorial Trust essay competition, if memory serves uh, me right, on what the the actual um, circumstances was for that, entitled Canada and the Fourth Battle of the Atlantic. And that piece talks about uh, anti-submarine warfare and the role that Canada could potentially play in it going forward, as well as the role that Canada does play in anti-submarine warfare um, at present, as well as historically. So to start off the conversation, can you talk a little bit about what anti-submarine warfare actually involves and what the different uh, parts of that uh, entail? Certainly. Anti-submarine warfare is, as it states, uh, warfare against submarines, and it entails uh, aircraft against submarines or uh, surface ships against submarines or even submarines against submarines uh, entails both the locating, uh, tracking, uh, identifying submarines, but also ultimately uh, the combating and ideally sinking them before they're able to to uh, attack our forces. Um, It can be done both at the tactical level, which is between the individual units and the submarines, or it can be done at a theater level, which is the coordination of ships and aircraft across countries and across uh, ocean bodies uh, to locate one or more submarines from an enemy force. So if you have sort of just a hunt for Red October deep appreciation for it, uh, that's one boat trying to find another one or maybe a couple. Um, But you're talking about how uh, that activity sort of situates within a wider set of military operational activity involving air assets, involving command and control relationships, uh, listening outposts, and kind of a whole uh, integrated set of activities that all goes into trying to figure out where uh, an opposition submarine is and then following it through the water space. That's exactly right. And in fact, uh, Hunt for Red October, the, the perennially popular uh, anti-submarine warfare movie, although it's now competing with Greyhound, which I really enjoyed as a deep in the weeds naval movie, although my wife and hopefully Tom Hanks doesn't listen to this, found it to have all the emotional depth of a Hallmark movie. But uh, Hunt for Red October shows both that tactical battle between individual ships and individual submarines, but it also shows that theater level coordination of bringing ships from various areas and coordinating those across the uh, the ocean. So it's not a bad uh, analogy, actually. Okay, so the, the title of your paper was uh, uh, Canada and the Fourth Battle of the Atlantic. So situate us for, you drew that, uh, the title um, specifically referring to a Fourth Battle of the Atlantic off um, a, an exercise that NATO was doing. Uh, why that title, what does it signify, and, and how does an anti-submarine warfare and a submarine threat fit into the current uh, kind of landscape uh, in which Canada sits now? Well, the, the title, the Fourth Battle of the Atlantic, is actually stolen from Admiral James Fogo III. He was the U.S. uh, Admiral in charge of Sixth Fleet, which is the European uh, 
portion of the U.S. Navy. And what he wrote was that with the resurgence of Russian forces and the resurgence of uh, Russian submarine capability in the in the 2010s and through the teens, that uh, we were entering into what he called the fourth battle of the Atlantic. And uh, just as I was getting ready to write the article, um, NATO's, uh, I forget the exact organization, but they stood up a new organization in uh, Norfolk, which is double-hatted with U.S. Navy Second Fleet, which also stood up. I'm going to find Joint Force Command Norfolk, which were stood up in response to this, this resurgent uh, Russian threat. And they held a tabletop conference of all senior leaderships across um, uh, NATO countries that participate in this field, because it's not everyone. Albania doesn't really have a, a robust ASW capability, but there are major players that do. And they met in Norfolk uh, last summer in 2020 to have the first tabletop exercise of the Fourth Battle of the Atlantic. Um, and the Fourth Battle of the Atlantic is James uh, or Admiral Fogo. It, what he's referring to is the first battle of the Atlantic was against the Germans in the First World War, and the second battle of the Atlantic, the one that has uh, the most um, historical resonance, is the the battle against the Nazi submarine threat in the Second World War, which Canada was so engaged. And his argument was that in the Cold War we were in a third battle of the Atlantic, a cold battle of the Atlantic against the Soviet threat. Um, throughout that whole period as they built up their Navy and they built up their submarine forces. And while that sort of disappeared in the 90s and early aughts when the Russians uh, were having their economic collapse and, and the Soviet Union was uh, collapsed and there wasn't much of a Russian threat or, or presence even in the oceans, in the last 10 years or so, They've been. They've come roaring back. They've built new submarines, and they're they're positioning themselves in opposition to NATO in the Atlantic, and that's the fourth battle of the Atlantic. So to, to stay with 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 what the Russians are doing, I guess there, there's two things that you flag uh, in the paper that I, I think are, are germane to the conversation in particular. So one is kind of the. So you touched a little bit about the kind of the rebuilding and the quantity, as well as the qualitative. Um, technological proficiency of the Russian submarines themselves. And then I guess uh, the other important part that's, that's come up a lot in discussions um, uh, related to continental defense, uh, but what, what the Russians are doing more broadly is that they've modernized uh, some of the missile technology that those submarines can embark. So talk a little bit about those two aspects uh, and what that uh, means in terms of how we should be thinking about what the Russians can do in this sense. Is the Russians have built a, a variety of new submarines, both uh, ballistic missile submarines and uh, nuclear and um, acoustic submarines. But what makes them even more potent than they were even in the Soviet period is they've developed a caliber missile system, which they have fitted on, on their surface ships as well. But in combination with their um, submarines, it's an extremely potent threat because it not only is an anti-ship missile with an extremely large range, at least advertised by the Russians, and we're studying it within NATO, um, but they advertise hundreds and thousands of miles in, in the capability of this missile, but it also has a land attack capability, which the Russians really didn't have outside of a, a nuclear strike uh, before. 
uh, under the Soviet Union, if they were going to strike uh, uh, North America, it was either through uh, bombers, which had to get here, or it was through a nuclear strike, which with the uh, intendant uh, or the uh, escalation that brings with it. So, okay, so in the previous dynamic uh, where we were engaged in the in so the classically conceived Canadian Battle of the Atlantic, uh, the one where we you know we featured in the movie Greyhound, but that very much was involving the resupply convoys uh, crossing the North Atlantic to resupply um, the United Kingdom, and in that circumstance, the, the submarine threat primarily was one that was threatened shipping, uh, either commercial or or the military escorts, and then during the the nuclear period in the Cold War, uh, submarines represented part of the. The, the whole nuclear force um, with the attendant kind of escalation involved in that. Uh, but what you're outlining now is that there's an additional conventional military capability that can be embarked in the ship that can actually uh, potentially reach out uh, towards Canada and the rest of North America. That's exactly right. So the, the Russians and the Soviets before them have long had anti-ship cruise missiles on their submarines. Uh, in fact, uh, the Kursk and the Oscar II class was built to fire missiles at carriers, uh, large bus-sized missiles that were supposed to overwhelm the carrier's force. But it was really still a submarine versus ship threat. Uh, what they've proven in Syria, what they have in their testing of their systems, apart from supporting their um, allies in the Middle East is they have fired cruise missiles from their sub platforms into Syria to strike at the rebels during the Syrian civil war. And that capability can be used anywhere the Russians wish to uh, project force. And that's, that's a new capability. So if they can fire a missile three, 400 miles, they could sit in the uh, uh, Atlantic well off the coast and strike uh, targets uh, in Canada or in the US. Uh, and get away on a conventional level, which still is obviously an act of war and, and uh, would, would have a serious response, but does not necessarily bring the same uh, response that uh, nuking Washington or New York would. Okay, and so that that introduces a number of different potential changes in terms of how we need to think about this, because it's not just, uh, um, on one sense, just protecting an existing naval force. On the other hand, it's not at the upper end of an escalation ladder. It's something that's potentially in between, and, and that introduces um, some additional complexity in there. So you've talked about the Russian side of things. Uh, talk a bit about uh, the NATO alliance and its capabilities, because as you laid out uh, throughout the Cold War, uh, the Russians had a, a, a submarine force. Um, what's happened with NATO's anti-submarine warfare capability in the last decades? Well, as the threat went away and as NATO was um, preoccupied with uh, the operations in the war in Afghanistan and in uh, before that in uh, the former Yugoslavia, more and more resources from NATO were required there. And there wasn't seen, especially during the 90s and the early part of this uh, millennium, to have much of a, an ASW threat. So NATO not only decreased uh, the size of their naval forces, uh, some countries, uh, sold off their maritime patrol aircraft, for example, or they got rid of older uh, frigates with uh, robust uh, ASW capability. Um, not all of the new platforms that came online, uh, many of them did, but not all of those platforms were fitted as robustly with an ASW capability because it was not seen as a threat. So 
when you're talking ship design and shipbuilding, as we know in Canada, perhaps more than others, uh, you're talking decades long procurement processes. So if you've started a process in you know 2005, when the Russians had, were not sailing many submarines, there wasn't conceivably a large threat, um, you could be designing a ship that had no ASW capability, which is one of the German uh, frigate models that's recently come online. Um, so that is a challenge that NATO's had. It's not to say that we don't have a robust capability and we do exercise it. Uh, NATO MARCOM, the uh, Naval Headquarters in Northwood run two large ASW exercises a year, one in the Mediterranean, Dynamic Manta, and the other up off Norway, Dy uh, Dynamic Mongoose. But the number of forces available, the number of submarines available, the number of aircraft available has decreased. The, the Brits, the example I use in my book, or in my, sorry, my article, I, Forgive me for that one, but uh, they decommissioned their Nimrod fleet, their maritime patrol aircraft in 2010 due to flight safety issues. And they had no maritime patrol aircraft until just now, they're just starting to get the new US Navy's um, P-8 Poseidon that they've purchased. And they fast-tracked that and they're only getting the first airframes. They've only just now gotten to uh, initial operating capabilities. So you can see there's long uh, lead times there. There's a lot of training and experience that has atrophied during that period. And uh, NATO is trying to bring it back because that threat is very, or that, uh, that potential threat is very real. But it takes, uh, as you know, Hillary used to say, what does it take to get uh, a sergeant with 10 years experience? It takes 10 years. How, what does it take to get a, a petty officer who, you know, has a lot of uh, experience in, in, in operating sonars, but takes a lot of time and experience. So it's, it's something that we're uh, rebuilding across NATO. One of the things I say in my article is that Canada, by happy circumstances, by uh, careful pre-planning and potentially a bit by luck, are actually well positioned to take a lead role in the rebuilding of uh, this capability because um, we have just recently started to procure uh, new ASW helicopters. We're getting new ships that are gonna have a robust ASW capability. We've just modernized ASW capability in the frigates even more recently than the midlife refit. And we are in every area of warfare in ASW from air to subsurface. So uh, as this threat reinvigorates, Canada has the opportunity to take a lead role in NATO in ensuring that we are prepared for it. And that snapshot that you just gave, um, that's following on uh, decades of past involvement in this area. I guess to just take a moment to kind of talk about the historical Can Royal Canadian Navy's role uh, and this area of, of maritime uh, um, operations. Certainly. So as, as I say in the article, in the first Battle of the Atlantic in the First World War really kicked off in 1917. Canada didn't really have a role. We were very much a, a coastal Navy. Uh, we provided some bodies to the Royal Navy, but we didn't really participate. But as, as most uh, students of Canadian naval history are aware, in the Second uh, World War, this was our everything. The, the Battle of the Atlantic was Canada's naval battle. It was the longest running battle of the war. Canada started it with uh, an incredibly small Navy. 
the Canadian Navy actually was of all the services in all the countries in the Second World War, the one that grew the most with all of the growing pains that came with it. Uh, we struggled, we weren't, uh, we weren't ready for it, and we had um, a lot of challenges through that war. But at the end of the Second World War, we had the world's third largest Navy, and uh, Rear Admiral Murray was in charge of the Western Atlantic. He was the only theater commander, uh, only Canadian theater commander in the Second World War, and he was responsible for all escort duties and all anti-submarine duties in the uh, Western Atlantic because this had been so important to the Canadian Navy. So we ended that uh, the Second World War and we went into the Cold War with dreams of this massive fleet that would be able to carry on this role. And that ran straight into the realities of uh, the post-war uh, budget cuts and everything else. But with the very uh, quick pivot to the Cold War, um, they recognized a need to be able to maintain that Atlantic bridge between North America and Europe. And so for the entirety of the Cold War, our Navy was very much focused on ASW and anti-submarine warfare and that escort role. So all of our ships were ASW um, uh, platforms. We were, we were leaders during that time. We developed uh, the ability to land large helicopters on small ships in order to have an ASW helicopter with the, the ships that we had. We developed uh, uh, or really perfected the use of towed arrays and uh, variable depth sonars. And it was the area in which throughout the Cold War, our Navy was focused. It wasn't in fact until we got the Halifax class in the beginning of the 90s that we started getting uh, anti-ship and anti-air missiles on our on our platforms. Before that, it was just a gun and a whole lot of ASW. So um, we came out of the Cold War with a lot of hard-won experience and training and, 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 and practical experience, not in actually the, the, the fighting of submarines, but certainly in the locating and tracking of submarines that we developed through the Cold War. And that's never really fully gone away. Obviously, with uh, our commitment after 9-11 um, on Op Apollo and, and the subsequent missions, uh, we were much more focused on uh, maritime interdiction and uh, with new flashy missiles. And I say this as an anti-submarine warfare uh, officer in my background, uh, attracting the, the attention of the admirals because they're, they're cool and they're, they're fast and, uh, flashy, but uh, we never really lost uh, a leading capability in anti-submarine warfare. Um, and now that we've done the midlife refit, we've got uh, the new capabilities uh, for the ships, but we actually did the ASW refit uh, afterwards, just due to the procurement process and, and what we could get when we could get it. So we're now actually going through the midlife refit for the ASW suite uh, that started in the last year or so. So that's going to modernize the Halifax class to a high level to get us to the, uh, the Type 26 that we're hopefully going to start seeing in the future. And I don't want to give a date because I haven't been uh, following that closely enough to, to, to say uh, when they're coming online. But they will, they will take us, the, the Halifax class will be prepared to take us to that date. Um, and I, I, I 
say perhaps uh, controversially um, in the Canadian forces, but the uh, purchase and the delays in purchasing the cyclone modern up-to-date uh, submarines from or anti-submarine uh, warfare helicopters that uh, will prepare to take us into the future. And the Sea Kings were extremely capable and we used them, as you know, well past their best before date. But now we have a modernized helicopter. We're still involved in um, undersea surveillance as part of the community that does uh, the monitoring of the oceans through the uh, subsurface arrays and through the towed arrays uh, on the Surtaz ships. And with the recent block update for the Auroras, we are still extremely capable in our fixed wing capability. Along, and I can't forget, uh, of course, that uh, the Victoria class is again operating. We've uh, uh, gone through another maintenance period but they're back in the water and we have proven that they are an extremely capable platform that's deployed to the Mediterranean, that's deployed to the Norwegian Sea and uh, to Japan. So we really have uh, all of the tools in the toolbox, uh, as do some of our NATO partners, but for considering the size of Canada, this is an area in which we can be leaders within NATO. So I'll just so you touched on all the different platforms, um, both air from uh, maritime aviation in terms of long range patrol, as well as the the shipborne uh, helicopter, uh, the surface ships, the submarines. I just take an additional minute before we get into the, the possibility of Canada to bring this entire kind of skill set together. Um, just take a minute to expand on the undersea surveillance because Canada is part of a lot of different uh, organizations. Uh, I think you're kind of illustrating that amongst the clubs of, uh, of which Canada is a member, this is one of the smallest and most specialized. So just talk a little bit about what the, the acoustical monitoring, um, what that provides and how unique Canada's position in that is. Okay, I'm going to be uh, careful in what I say here, because although this uh, community has been uh, declassified in the 90s from what it was back in the day, it there's still areas that are, are sensitive. But uh, um, the United States Navy uh, throughout the Cold War developed uh, undersea surveillance, integrated undersea surveillance, IUSS. Uh, and these are a series of long fixed acoustic arrays to listen across the ocean basins. Uh, and they're extremely capable. Some of them are getting up there in age, but they still have capability and there's a lot of them are still out there. Um, and initially they would, they would bring them ashore and they would build a facility right where they went ashore. So there was one up, uh, US Navy one in Argentia, Newfoundland that Canada took over. There was one in Shelburne, uh, Nova Scotia. There was uh, one in uh, Bermuda, or sorry, yes, in Bermuda that was uh, co-crewed uh, co by uh, Canadian sailors. But as technology advanced, they were able to geographically uh, locate all of the operators into uh, one or two locations where they could monitor either the Atlantic or the Pacific. Uh, this is still ongoing. It's advanced. In fact, there's now uh, towed array ships that can provide information passive and active back to these, these uh, control centers, the Naval Ocean Processing Facilities, either in Whitby Island, uh, Washington State, or in, in Dam Neck in Virginia. And um, there are only, and this is straight from the, the uh, Commander Undersea Surveillance website, 
uh, there's only three countries that are participating in this monitoring. So Canada, we have a small detachment of Canadian sailors and officers working in Whidbey Island in the Pacific and, and doing that monitoring. And uh, the British have a, a small detachment uh, with uh, the Americans in Dam Neck. So the, those three countries are, are the most actively engaged. There's a few others, I'm not gonna mention them because again, it is a sensitive uh, field, but generally uh, those are the, the three big players that are engaged doing that, that uh, day in day out passive acoustics uh, and active acoustics, um, both against the Russians in the Atlantic and the Pacific, but also uh, listening for other submarines operating uh, in those ocean basins. So, so to tie that all together, um, and what you lay out in the paper is that there's sort of a, a unique kind of confluence of uh, factors here. You've got increasing uh, capability in the subsurface uh, uh, domain from, from folks that are, um, depending on your frame of reference, adversaries, potential adversaries, threats, uh, et cetera. Uh, you've got uh, NATO as an alliance has gone through a period where its ASW capability ha has has uh, waned, although it's, it's coming back. Uh, and Canada's got a bit of a sort of a competitive advantage here and because we've got this kind of broad mix of skill sets uh, that not everybody else in the alliance does. So the, the argument you put forward uh, in the, the piece was that we could potentially have an opportunity to contribute to NATO, uh, a center of excellence uh, for anti-submarine warfare. So talk a little bit about what that would potentially involve and how that would kind of fit into some of the other things the Alliance does um, to develop kind of uh, analogous centers of excellence in other spheres. Yes, so I, I got this idea from a article by Margaret Hicks in uh, 2016. I'm, I can't remember exactly that the, the Undersea Warfare in Northern Europe article for the Center of Strategic and International Studies. And what she proposes is she identifies uh, the emerging or re-emerging Russian submarine threat, mainly in the Baltic, but uh, in Northern Europe. And one of her recommendations or one of the, her team's recommendations is the development of a center of excellence in ASW. So NATO has a series of centers of excellence uh, scattered around in various countries uh, from the Baltic uh, through Italy. And, uh, and I think there's even one or two in, in the US, but there's none currently in Canada. And these are, um, small centers, much like the Canadian Forces Maritime Warfare Center, but they focus on one area of warfare, be it uh, mine warfare or military police or military medicine or uh, shallow water mine warfare um, in a naval setting, which is one up in Germany. And countries will, will set these up and, and, and fund them, but they don't have to be a large organization. They could be dozens of, of experts working together. And what they're designed to do is take best practices from across uh, NATO and sort of distribute that information uh, back to the Alliance to develop it um, and, and distribute it back. And there is still a center in Italy that does a lot of acoustic research, but it's on the scientific side, it's not on the tactical side. So there isn't right now a center of excellence for ASW. Um, and to be honest, I think that's a bit of an oversight. It, it's, it's not uncommon. A lot of the larger, like there's not one for anti-air warfare or anti-ship warfare because these aren't niche capabilities, but ASW is 
while it is one of the major facets of naval warfare, the ability to do it well requires a lot of focus and specialization, much, I, I think, and I would argue more than some of the other areas. And if we had a NATO center of excellence in ASW, we, we could take that, we could focus that, those uh, specializations and that information, and we could get it out uh, to the world. And I've argued in the article that um, Canada, Halifax, in fact, is the perfect place for it. We have a large exercise uh, biannually, uh, Cutlass uh, Fury, which is held off of Halifax. And it uh, started as an ASW exercise. The second iteration went away from that just because you uh, play the cards you're dealt. We, not a lot of countries showed up with submarines. It's hard to do a, an anti-submarine warfare exercise without submarines. But uh, the, the uh, upcoming 2021 version of Cutlass Fury is going back to that ASW route. So this is going to be a large ASW exercise held every couple of years off of Halifax. Halifax has Canada's maritime uh, forces uh, warfare, uh, maritime warfare center uh, that already contains our experts in this field, as well as the Aurora community is just up this road in Greenwood. The Cyclone community is, is uh, strong down in, uh, in Shearwater. So we have all of our experts there already. Uh, and by having this center of excellence in, in Halifax, not only can we build that, that uh, expertise across the Alliance, but it's a good reminder uh, that Canada is a contributing participant in NATO, and we would get those uh, experts from the other side of the Atlantic who may not, may be a bit North America blind when it comes to NATO, or at least Canada blind when it comes to NATO, across the Atlantic into Canada, uh, working with our experts who are leaders as, in the field, as I say, um, and rebuilding those bonds or, or, or strengthening those bonds uh, within the Alliance. So that's, that's my main contribution or my main uh, suggestion in the article. Well, and I, I certainly think that it's uh, an interesting uh, consideration uh, for folks, you know, who perennially have uh, burden sharing discussions uh, in Canada. And I, and I think uh, one way of my reflection on, on what you've, you've outlined here uh, is that this is a, an area where Canada potentially has something uh, unique and value added uh, to contribute to the alliance writ large, that that doesn't necessarily get into the you know the same kind of conversations about spending two percent uh, of defense on GDP as an example. Um, this might cost a little bit more, but it's probably not going to require going to to that threshold. So, uh, Peter, thanks for coming on today and and discussing uh, your suggestion. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity. It was a real pleasure. Last question, though, before I let you go, uh, what are you reading these days? Well, I just spent the last year as directing staff at uh, Staff College, so I've been mostly reading whatever was assigned for the next uh, lecture in order to stay ahead of my students. But uh, on my own, I'm reading the uh, U.S. Navy's uh, history of the Battle of Leyte Gulf uh, by Samuel Elliott Morrison. Okay. Uh, I think uh, on point for the discussion today. Uh, Peter, thanks again for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. 
And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed. <laughs>